Joyce Vincent, a radiant beauty of West Indies descent, moved into one of London's busiest neighborhoods to pursue a career in singing. Gifted and attractive, reviewers compared her to a young Whitney Houston. Tragically, though, she died late in 2003 at the age of 38. Even more tragically, her body was not discovered for three years. She was eventually found seated on a sofa in front of a television that had been left on for three years, surrounded by Christmas presents. A brief newspaper article on these strange circumstances led a filmmaker to produce a documentary about Miss Vincent called Dreams of a Life. And in the New York Times Review, the reviewer said that uh, the film tried to answer the question, how is it possible for the death of someone remembered as an effervescent, talented life of the party to go unnoticed for so long? And the reviewer concludes that The film never answers the question. Life in the city can be lonely. People come to cities because they want anonymity. They want to be able to live their own life. But the dark side of that is uh, loneliness. And it's not just the the city where people can be lonely. You can be lonely anywhere. Uh, Henry Nouwen, the, the writer, talks about loneliness in his book, Reaching Out. And he says, the contemporary society in which we find ourselves, makes us acutely aware of our loneliness. Loneliness is one of the most universal sources of human suffering today. The roots of loneliness are very deep. They find their food in the suspicion that there is no one who cares and offers love without conditions, and no place where we can be vulnerable without being used. Well, one of the ways that God's people have tried to bless their neighbor, serve their neighbor, seek the peace of the city over the years, is by extending a welcome to lonely people, to their neighbors, to strangers that they haven't met yet in their neighborhood. And the Bible calls this practice of extending that kind of a witness hospitality. And that's an interesting word. It's a very biblical word, but we've kind of lost uh, the meaning of it. Uh, Now it says... At first, the the word hospitality might evoke the image of a soft, sweet kindness, tea parties, bland conversations, and a general atmosphere of coziness. The concept of hospitality has lost much of its power in our culture. And then he says, if there is any concept worth restoring to its original depth and evocative potential, it is the concept of hospitality. So tonight, uh, we want to end by talking a little bit about how we can practice hospitality in our city. But I wanted to spend some time trying to restore the concept, the idea of of what we mean when we talk about hospitality. The book of Genesis is, is where we'll start. Genesis attributes the loneliness that we all feel to the fall. Sin, which is the shattering of shalom, cuts us off from God, from each other. It even leads to violence. And Cain is the first person that that talks about his sense of loneliness and isolation. All, All the way back at Genesis 4, he says to God after punishing him for murdering his brother, he says, you've driven me away. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
And so Cain becomes a kind of symbol of the alienated human being, a symbol of the loneliness of life in a fallen world. But soon God moves his people to pursue hospitality towards those that wander through the planet alone. When three guests appear at Abraham's tent in the heat of a hot desert day, Abraham kneels before them, washes their feet. He and Sarah prepare a tremendous feast, tell them to stay and rest. Gradually, Abraham realizes that they're angels. They warn him about the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They bless the elderly couple with the promise of a child in their old age. And that, that story becomes a kind of a picture of hospitality in, in the Bible. There's always this mysterious hope or, or sense that when you are reaching out to the stranger, there's a way in which God is present and a way in which you can hear His promise and blessing that you might not have otherwise. Well, within a few generations, Abraham's descendants become strangers in Egypt. And the book of Exodus is really a book about hospitality. Uh, God reaching out to strangers in captivity, rescuing them and drawing them to Himself. And so Israel knows what it means to experience hospitality because God has extended hospitality to her. And so God will command Israel and us to treat others who are strangers the way we've been treated ourselves. Leviticus 19, 33. God says, When a stranger lives with you in your land, you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 10, 16. The Lord your God is the God of all gods. He loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. And that means you should love immigrants because you were immigrants in Egypt. And so, as always in Scripture, the experience of grace begets grace. Uh, We've been treated kindly as strangers by a gracious God. We should have that same response to those who are strangers among us. And given how important this is in Israel, there's a lot of Old Testament stories about it. Uh, Sometimes the practice of hospitality is rewarded. Abigail wins uh, herself a husband because she's so generous in hospitality to David. The widow of Zarephath, uh, who gives Elijah her last meal, is rewarded with enough food to sustain her until the famine is over. The Shunammite woman provides a guest room for Elisha. She's rewarded with a son. In other stories, describe God's punishment uh, when people don't practice hospitality. Uh, The Ammonites and the Moabites, uh, for example, are excluded from the assembly for ten generations because they failed to provide bread and water for Israel in the desert. And then in another story, kind of brutally making the same point, a very stingy sheep rancher named Nabal drops dead from a heart attack after he has denied David a request for food for his troops. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus extends the tradition. And one of the ways he does it is by making the dinner table the central symbol of the kingdom of God. I'm not really a scholar of world religions. I'd be interested to know from Dan, those who have studied other religions, what the central motif or metaphor is. But the central image in Christianity is eating together, being together around the table. That's the heart of our faith. It made a little more sense in the ancient world. I don't know if this is still true in uh, Eastern countries today, but in the ancient world, 
Uh, eating together was a sacred act that was bounded by uh, a lot of social understandings. Uh, you didn't just have anybody into your home. Uh, you, and, and when you did, it was a way of offering them your protection and your heart. It was, it was a very intimate gift. And so Jesus uh, talks about this, but adds something. He, he adds, when you have people into your lives, change the guest list. The way the ancient world often worked with, work was on this uh, value of reciprocity. So I would have you over, so you'd have me over. And Jesus says, actually, have the people over that will never have you over. That's the kind of hospitality I want you to practice. And so Jesus is always talking about eating, coming to table together. Uh, he, he introduces a Roman soldier to the gospel and, uh, and his disciples say, how could a guy like that get into the kingdom? He's our enemy. And Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see the the image? Heaven is this big dinner table where people are coming from east and west and north and south. Everybody's coming to the table. And then he tells a young man who's having a banquet, he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. And this becomes such a central part of his ministry that his enemies uh, will describe it that way. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Sometimes Jesus is the host of a great meal. He feeds 5,000 on a Galilean hillside and then says, I am the bread of life. And on the night before his death, he's hosting yet another meal, the Passover meal, with his disciples. I think the great writer Frederick Buechner had these verses in mind when he describes a a famous dinner party in his novel Love Feast. And the main character in Love Feast is a a traveling evangelist of kind of dubious uh, ethics (laughs) uh, called Leo Beb. And Reverend Leo arranges the spur-of-the-moment Thanksgiving dinner at the Princeton home of his wealthy patroness. And the guest list includes this odd combination. There's a nun, there's a school teacher, there's students, there's a prostitute, and somehow they've all come together around this table for Thanksgiving. And after the guests have eaten their fill, Reverend Bibb pushes back his chair and he, he decides to bring a little word. And the narrator recalls some of the fragrance of this suppertime sermon. He said, in other words, Reverend Leo, the kingdom of heaven is like a great feast. That's the way of it. In the kingdom of heaven, it's a love feast where nobody's a stranger. Like right here. There's strangers everywhere you can think of. There's strangers that was born out of the same womb. There's strangers was raised together in the same town and worked side by side all their life through. There's strangers that got married and been climbing in and out of the same bed together for 40 years, and they're still strangers. And Jesus is like most of the time, he's a stranger too. Even when he's as near as the end of your nose, people make like he's nowhere around. But here in this place, there's no strangers, and Jesus isn't a stranger either. The kingdom of heaven is like this. He said, we all got secrets. I got them same as everybody else. Things we feel bad about and wish hadn't ever happened. Hurtful things. We're all scared and lonesome. 
Most of the time we keep it hid. It's like every one of us has lost his way so bad, we don't even know which way is home anymore, and only we're ashamed to ask how to get there. You know what would happen if we would own up we're lost and just ask? Why, what would happen is that we'd find home is each other. We'd find out home is Jesus loves us, lost or found, or any which way. That's the kingdom of God as Jesus describes it. It's a home where everyone is welcome. Every kind of stranger. Now, following in this tradition, the early Christians practiced hospitality towards their neighbors in the city. And urban life in the early church was extremely difficult. The cities were overcrowded. Rodney Stark, the sociologist, estimates that Antioch was six times more crowded than Chicago. And at that time, city dwellers would live in these tall, wooden tenement apartments. And they obviously had to cook. And so uh, the open fires would send soot everywhere, and the apartments were always in danger of burning down and often did. Uh, There was no plumbing, so you disposed of of your waste by throwing the chamber pot out onto the street. Uh, Half of your children died before their first birthday. You just expected it. Most children who did live lost a parent before they were 20. Robbers roamed the streets. Racial tensions boiled over as thousands of immigrants came to the city seeking work. Professor Stark writes, Night would fall over the city like the shadow of a great danger, diffused, sinister, menacing. Everyone fled to his home, shut himself in, and barricaded the entrance. The shops fell silent. Safety chains were drawn behind the leaves of doors. If the rich had to sally forth, they were accompanied by slaves who carried torches to light and protect them on their way. Juvenile sighs that to go out to supper without having made your will was careless. So this is the world that God sends Christians into as strangers and and exiles and, and tells them to Uh, not just fear the stranger, as it was easy to do, but to love him. Uh, The Greek word for stranger is xenos. Uh, The Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia. It is literally loving strangers. Paul exhorts the believers living in the, the enormous city of Rome, seek to show hospitality. The author of the letter to the Hebrews wrote Christians living in cities, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Peter reminds readers scattered in cities across the empire, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Paul reminds Timothy, planting churches in the huge city of Ephesus, look for leaders who are hospitable. And even the aged John, recording his visions on the island of Patmos, uh, sent them to struggling churches in the cities, describing the kingdom of heaven as a great marriage supper to which everyone is invited. So hospitality is a lot more than cookies and punch after church. It's it's opening your heart, opening your mind, opening your, your life to the outsider, to the foreigner, to the guest, to the immigrant, to with the same gracious love that God has showed you.
Now, probably the person, as I've said, who I think's reflected the most deeply on hospitality in our time is Henry Nouwen. And I'd like to share with you a quote uh, in which he defines hospitality. In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture, and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where a community can be found. Hospitality means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. The paradox of hospitality is that it wants to create emptiness, not a fearful emptiness, but a friendly emptiness, where strangers can enter and discover themselves as created free, free to sing their own songs, speak their own languages, dance their own dances, free also to leave and follow their own vocations. Hospitality is not a subtle invitation to adopt the lifestyle of the host, but the gift of a chance for the guest to find his own. Well, hospitality becomes the primary way that the gospel spreads in the early church, and it would work kind of like this. Um, They would welcome their neighbors, the people that they met, into their homes, into their communities. Over time, they would engage in conversations about the new way of life that Christ offers. And gently, patiently, over many months, they would share the gospel, and, and often the stranger who had become a friend would believe in Christ and be baptized. And I think that's an approach that our Lord models as well when he witnesses to his first disciples. Uh, You read about it in John chapter 1. Andrew and John, uh, prompted by John the Baptist, are following Jesus. And then here's what happened next. When Jesus turned and saw them, he asked, what do you want? And they answered, Rabbi, where do you live? And Jesus replied, come and see. It was already about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him and saw where he lived. And they stayed the rest of the day. Come and see is hospitality evangelism. Uh, It's saying to our friend, our guest, our neighbor, uh, hey, uh, come come walk with us. Come be a part of us. Come belong. Um, Come get involved. And, And then becoming friends and having conversations about Christ along the way. The Celtic monasteries practiced come-and-see evangelism very effectively. Um, During a period in the Middle Ages when the church in Europe had stagnated, thousands of people came to Christ in Ireland through the ministry of these monasteries. And they focused on welcoming guests. Uh, And suppose you became a guest at an Irish monastery. What would it be like? Uh, Well, first of all, you would come and a porter would meet you at the entrance. And his chief job was just to welcome guests and introduce them to the rest of the community. And then an abbot or sometimes an abbess would would gently inquire about what prompted your visit. And they called that the ministry of conversation. And then the the abbot would read a scripture for you, offer a prayer and extend the kiss, kiss of peace. And then the abbot would wash your feet and take you into a guest house 
and then another brother would prepare a bed for you. And you would be seated at the abbot's head table uh, during meals. If you arrived during a season of fasting, the abbot would break his fast so you wouldn't feel uncomfortable because nothing was more important than reaching out to the guest. And if you chose to stay, you'd be provided with an anamkara, which means soul friend, a small group and a place for prayer and solitude. And you'd be invited to worship. And every day, several brothers would stop by to have conversations with you and pray with you. And over time, you would either decide that this was not the life you wanted and move on, or you'd become a Christian and be baptized. And thousands did. And that's really the way we think about evangelism at all souls. Uh, Come and see evangelism. Uh, There's an Irish proverb that says, it is in the shelter of each other that the people live. And so we try to invite our, our, our neighbors and friends to live under the shelter of our life together with God. We invite them to come and see another way for broken people to make their way in a lonely world. And as the months go by and as we live under the gentle rhythm of the Christian year and read the scriptures and study them and worship together and break bread together and as we give birth to our babies and marry our children and bury our dead, we witness to the gospel. So our welcome is our witness. John Veneer wisely wrote, Welcome is one of the signs that a community is alive. To invite others to live with us is a sign that we are not afraid, that we have a treasure of truth and of peace to share. A community which refuses to welcome whether through fear, weariness, insecurity, a desire to cling to comfort, or just because it's fed up with visitors, is dying spiritually. Well, I'd like to end now that we've kind of laid out a a biblical foundation for hospitality as a way to seek the peace of the city with just a couple of thoughts about what that might mean for us. First, Authentic hospitality is a response to grace. I hope we've established that, that it's not something you should do, it's something you've experienced, so it naturally flows out of you. Now, it's interesting as I talk with folks about this and look at my own experience, a lot of us have what you might call hospitality anxiety. Um, when, When you think about having a bunch of people over, it doesn't give you, some of you it just lights up. It just, it's the easiest thing in the world. Others, it creates a lot of anxiety uh, you start worrying about the dog hair. Um, you start wondering about spilling things, uh, whether or not you're going to have enough soup. It just really whacks you out. Now, that could mean one of two things. It might just mean you need to chill out, get over it, and keep going, <laughs> and not, not, not take it so seriously. But it could mean that the way you are to provide hospitality is a little different than the classic the soup's always on, drop in every time you want. That's a beautiful way of practicing hospitality, but I don't think that's everybody's way. Um, now let me try just a piece of Father Nowen's definition again. Hospitality means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place where strangers can enter and discover themselves as created free, free to sing their own songs, 
speak their own languages, dance their own dances, free also to leave and follow their own vocations. So I think maybe a better question is, what does it mean for you to create a emotionally and spiritually free space for another human being? What does it mean for you to create emotionally, spiritually free space where a stranger or guest can find their song? I think a lot of you are doing this already, uh, but don't even know it, or maybe you don't call it hospitality. Um, but I think if you, if you trace the energy in your life, if you look at the things that really give you joy, oftentimes those will lead you to expressions of hospitality that you're not aware that you're doing. You know, some of you practice hospitality towards the servers in your favorite restaurant. You, you learn their names. You even listen to their stories. You give them good books and generous tips and warm smiles. Some of you practice hospitality toward your students. You, you listen to them and encourage them. Some of you practice hospitality towards your clients. They, they've become more than business associates over the years. They've become friends. And so you create space in your conversations to talk with them about Christ. Some of you practice hospitality with your leadership. You, you lead a small group or a company or serve on a board. And, and, and what you're good at is crafting a welcoming culture that replaces fear of the stranger with love for the stranger. So what does it look like for you to practice hospitality? Second, we practice what we call consensual orthodoxy at all souls as an expression of hospitality. I'm not going to take long on this, but I just wanted to explain it for a moment. When we invite our neighbor to come to our church, we're inviting them to come and see Jesus. We're not inviting them to sample our many different beliefs about important doctrinal issues that many good Christians disagree on. And so we try to focus our teaching and preaching on Jesus and the classic expression of who he was that we find in the Apostles' Creed. And when we say consensual orthodoxy, we refer to uh, the core beliefs, the mere Christianity that the early church fathers recognized that all Christians in all places at all times have always believed. So if you're a guest here, we want you to believe in Christ. And so we will, over time, introduce you to Christ as expressed in the creeds. But what I hope we don't do is give you the impression that to become a follower of Christ, you need to believe in Christ plus our political political orientation, plus our view of how science and scripture come together, plus our particular take on divorce and remarriage, uh, on and on and on. So that's one of the reasons why we don't talk a lot about secondary issues and we let us kind of work it out in our, ourselves because we want to be hospitable to a guest and make it a safe place. And we don't want to kind of grow a doctrinal corn maze that a seeker has to navigate before finding the prize of Christ at the end. Now, the last thought is that biblical hospitality is more communal than individual. When, when we hear sermons like these, we usually think, okay, what should I do? And, and that's a fair application. Sometimes in the Bible, individuals practice hospitality like the Good Samaritan. 
But most of the time, the commands to practice hospitality are written to communities. Uh, And I want to think about that for a moment. Uh, I think most of us are very hospitable in our individual life, at least the ones of you that I know, I see it worked out every day. But one of the things that I've been wondering about is, what does it look like for us as a community to be more hospitable to our neighbors and strangers downtown? That, after all, was one of the original visions for our church. It's one of the reasons we moved into this space, is we wanted to be in the heart of things, and we wanted to figure out as a community, how do we reach out to our neighbors downtown? And so I'd like you to be thinking about that. I'm not sure we've really figured that out yet. Um, I would like to end with, uh, with a story I heard secondhand a few weeks ago. So I probably don't have all my facts right. I've got to go back and check this out. But uh, some folks were up at a conference in New York City with Tim Keller and some others. It was called Movement Day. And people from all over the world had come together to talk about seeking the peace of the city. And a bunch of guys from Portland got up and told a story, and I, I thought it was fascinating. Not sure it's the way we're supposed to do it, but I, I'll end with this. Um, for many years, many of the leaders of the church in Portland gathered for prayer, and they hosted evangelistic crusades. But there was a, a little bit of an adversarial relationship with the, with the government. Uh, it was kind of an uneasy peace. And a couple of years ago, some Christians wondered, you know, what do we do now? And so they said, we, we wonder if it's time for another evangelistic crusade in Portland. Maybe that's what God would have us do next. Well, they spoke with Luis Palau, who lives in Portland. And Luis Palau uh, is not as well known as Billy Graham, but he has spoken to about as many people as Billy Graham. He is a, a very well-known uh, crusade evangelist. And so they wondered, well, maybe we should have another crusade in Portland. Maybe that's what our city needs, is an evangelistic crusade. And his son, Kevin, came to him. And um, I wish I'd have been there for this conversation. But his son, who works in the organization, said, "Uh, Dad, uh, I think the days of crusades are over. Let's try something else. Now, Mr. Palau was uh, in his 70s. And uh, evidently, they prayed about it. and, And he... He, he agreed that it was time for another approach. So they got the leaders of the city church together, and they went to the mayor. The mayor had just been elected, and the mayor was uh, not, not a professing Christian and, and maybe in some ways was from a, a worldview that was a bit uh, opposed to, to, to some Christian values. But uh, they went to him, and I suspect they thought, the, the mayor thought, when uh, Mr. Palau and his son showed up, that they were going to demand their rights and ask for more things. But what uh, Mr. Palau did was ask for forgiveness. And he said to the mayor, uh, we've not really cared about what you wanted. Uh, we've been doing our own thing. We've had our own agenda. And on behalf of the church, I ask you to forgive us. Well, evidently, after the mayor got up from the floor, uh, <laughs> I don't usually have those conversations, I'm sure. He said, now we just want to know, what are your great challenges that you don't have enough resources to tackle? And how can we help? And that led to a conversation where the, the mayor identified housing and, and students as a, as a huge need that he didn't have the resources to meet. And the thousands of uh, Christians got together to provide mentoring for homeless people and students. 
And uh, now a wonderful partnership is, is developing. So there was no crusade, but there was lots of gospel. Let's pray.